Hello and welcome to The Thinkers, a special news series of thoughtful debates on the Monocle Weekly. Over coming weeks, we'll be convening expert panels to take a deeper look at the way things are and potentially will be over the coming months and years. I'm Andrew Muller. Today, we'll be looking at geography and social mobility, touching on social divisions and the changing makeup of cities, historical precedents for changes such as we are experiencing in our societies, space and inclusivity, and globalisation and the local community. Joining me to tackle all of this is Christoph Lindner, Dean of the Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment at University College London and a researcher in the interrelations between cities, globalisation and issues of social-spatial inequality. Also, Richard Sen a senior advisor to the United Nations on its programme on climate change and cities, also senior fellow at the Centre on Capitalism and Society at Columbia University and a visiting professor of urban studies at MIT, and Dr Brandy Thompson-Summers, an assistant professor of geography and global metropolitan studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Well, first of all, with world economies struggling and unemployment rising as a result of the pandemic and its associated lockdowns, the current changes in people's lives are immense. We're also seeing resistance to the oppression of civil rights across the world and calls for the reform of police and the removal of statues glorifying historical figures blamed for causing suffering. All of these things, I think, are linked in some way to the big story, which is the pandemic. So let's start by looking at that in total. Brandy, first of all, are there any historical precedents you can think of for the ways that we're seeing our cities reshaped? We are experiencing multiple crises at the same time. So on the one hand, I think there have been various forms of resistance that have taken place in different locations in the world. What I think is unprecedented about this moment is that we're not only undergoing a global pandemic and the economic, cultural, social, political just fallout from that, we're also having to reckon with the structural inequalities that have also existed specifically in America, Europe, parts of South America, et cetera, all the different cities in these different locations, and also calling upon those who are most vulnerable to actually put their bodies on the line. That's the part that I think is really important and new and really honestly fresh and also frustrating about this moment. Certainly, we've seen times when statues and other monuments have been taken down, or at least they've been attacked not just monuments, structures. We're seeing um, in Richmond, Virginia, the Daughters of the Confederacy building was set afire and destroyed ultimately. And so we're really having to deal with what questions we have about what's history, what are archives, who gets the opportunity to tell the story, um, and what particular narratives are going to go forward. Uh, Christoph, as, as Brandy correctly points out, this is not the first large-scale defenestration of statues we have witnessed. You only have to think back to 1989 when communism collapsed across Eastern Europe, rapidly followed by any number of statues of Karl Marx, Joseph Stalin and Vladimir Lenin. But those and similar acts of destruction tend to be a response to the collapse of a regime or the removal of a regime that was there at the time. These are all removals of statues commemorating figures from much more distant history, some of them actually entirely forgotten about until the removal of their statue put them in the in the headlines again. As a general rule, though, how much does 
urban architecture decoration like that even actually matter? Does it make a difference to the city who it chooses to commemorate? So, of course, it matters immensely. And the reason for putting those statues in public spaces that are visible is part of the message that those statues are communicating. And I don't think it's probably right to think of them as belonging to a distant history, the history that they're connected to. And if we look at the current toppling of statues, it's the history of slavery and colonialism. That history continues to shape the world today and continues to shape the lives of millions of people right now. So I think that the uh, symbolism and the urgency that is connected to those statues is very, very live and very, very real. And picking up on a point that Brandy made, which I think is really important, is to note the significance of coming out, having these protests, not just the statues, but the being in public protests during a pandemic. That is a real act of bravery because there are multiple dangers that protesters are facing. And we've seen some of the police violence and and other kinds of uh, state responses that are really quite frightening and in some cases quite violent. But also people are putting their health at risk and they know they're doing that. So I think it's a very, very symbolic and brave thing to be out in public at the moment. But I think that same thing also underlines just how important it is to be protesting in public space. Uh, Richard, to bring you in, is there a way that cities can, say even city authorities, can focus the discussion around urban monuments perhaps more constructively? Well, you know, I've been thinking about this in a very personal way. My first job was to be a researcher and a writer of something called the Kerner Commission Report, which was a report 50 years ago, I'm that old, about civil unrest in the 1960s in the U.S. And I was reading it over the other day because this is its 50th anniversary is actually next week of when we published it. Nothing seems to have changed. The proposals that we made about giving uh, more prominence to people who had resisted oppression through monuments, the changes that we proposed about diminishing the lethalness of the police, all of that was clear for these uh, 50 years ago, and yet nothing has been done. I mean, it's very depressing to me. And what worries me about this is that the injustices remain after people's energies of protest burnout. And I think the challenge for us is to find some way to really finally take seriously the fact that our cities in Britain as well as the U.S. have a problem with racism and that there's got to be some way that that's made clear to people in just walking around the city that there's a history of oppression which has shaped these cities. Memory is very, very fragile. Uh, Richard, just to follow that up, you're quite right in pointing out that none of the injustices that people have been demonstrating against in recent times are themselves recent injustices. This is a a long established pattern. But if you compare these protests to some of the others that you mentioned, do you perceive anything different about these ones or any greater reason for hope than you felt previously? Well, actually, in a way, I do, because... I think despite Donald Trump, there has been a lot of positive energy and very little negative energy in the form of just kind of 
mindless looting that's established itself with these protests. Another thing that's really struck me, which I think is good, is that there are many more white faces protesting now than there certainly were in the 1960s when we wrote our report. There were a few very radical white activists who were who showed, but largely it was a kind of cry of rage from within the black community. And I think this is something that's much bigger than that. So from that point of view, I think this is, is more positive, if I, uh, uh, although whether the power of either British or American government will respond is something that I think is problematic. But at least the people in the streets are more peaceful on the whole than they were in the 60s, and they're more mixed. Brandy, I want to come back to you with that idea that Richard was discussing there about the histories of repression that are visible in a city's architecture. And it is, of course, the case that architecture is often, if not always, an expression of some sort of power or otherwise. But even if we focus the discussion on the question of what should go, if anything, should go back on top of those recently vacated plinths, Is there a way that we can reshape urban architecture so it does encourage more productive, perhaps even more communal thinking and organizing? You know, I I think it's a complicated question because part of it really relates to the discipline of architecture. If we think about the role of the urban planner, if we think about the ways that practitioners really engage communities, it tends to be wrong. They don't necessarily approach communities thinking about how they use space, especially as public space is being developed. And so I think Richard's point is really important because if we think historically about how cities have been constructed, I know I've written just thinking about like the urban landscape in ways that it it was built to contain Black people, specifically in the United States. And so when you have cities that are literally built to keep populations in place, and when you have real estate practices and policies that exist to this day that prevent certain areas from accruing wealth or uh, accruing value, then we're not gonna necessarily be able to change it just with community input. And so I think what's important about this moment, and we have to also keep in mind that this moment is happening because of a culmination of events, a culmination of policies, uh, structures, that we have to acknowledge what's being exposed now. We're seeing ways that cities mobilize law enforcement, and not just cities, but the federal government mobilizes militaristic law enforcement practices in order to silence or quiet different communities. We're seeing the way that the media ends up being complicit in showing certain kinds of stories that end up being exceptional rather than what's really going on in the streets. And so I think there must be a shift in not only how we're constructing these particular narratives and understanding what's going on, but really respecting how communities want to use space rather than determining and having it be a top-down process. I know, again, I I often take urban planning and city planning to task because I think there's a way that there's an expertise that's assumed within that particular field or in different cities that politicians, developers, etc., as well as planners can figure out how to use the space the best way in order for the city to also grow and to potentially profit from the space itself. I do think that There are examples, plenty of examples in cities where 
more marginalized and vulnerable populations have used vernacular architecture or different practices to create community that don't necessarily involve the state or at least the state telling them what to do. So yeah, I, I think there's potential. I think in ways calling out the activities and these events that certainly happened in 68, 67, 66, we can go all the way back and as we're thinking about Kerner, but there are ways that we already have the tools here. It's just we actually have to implement them. Christoph, I'll come back to you for a final quick thought on this particular subject before we move along slightly. But we've seen a lot in the response to the recent remodelling of some high streets by the removal of their statues, incredibly visceral responses to them, both for and against, which was doubtless the idea. But when we think about how cities might be reshaped, is there anything that shouldn't be up for grabs, by which I guess I'm asking, is anything sacred? So I think cities are always changing, constantly. I think we need to be open to all kinds of possibilities for change. But the real key question here, particularly as we imagine a post-COVID future, is what kind of change do we want? What kind of cities do we want? And I think one of the unfortunate trends globally over the last century or so is that cities have become increasingly places of inequality. And the current pandemic, of course, is not just exposing that, but also exacerbating inequalities. And one of the places where that's being experienced in a very radical way all over the world right now is in housing. There was already a housing crisis really uh, widespread, problems of affordable housing really acute in uh, major cities like London, New York, Los Angeles, and, and many others. And so in a period when so many people are being locked down in their homes, realizing that the home is maybe not a safe place, that the home is not a site of refuge, that the home is actually uh, cutting us off from society and so on, is a really problematic thing. So I think that the struggles for housing justice, they were urgent before COVID, and they're going to be even more urgent as we come out of COVID. One of the things that I take inspiration from in the protests are the possibilities to kind of fight the power structures that have shaped our cities uh, historically to embrace the possibility of more equal cities in the future. And that equality cannot just be spatial. It also needs to be economic and social. And of course, it has to do with health and well-being as well. Let's explore some of those ideas a little bit further, because the pandemic has obviously had an enormous impact on the way that almost everybody in the world lives, but perhaps especially those in urban areas. Cities have become everything they are usually not. They have become quiet and static and antisocial. So let's talk about the ways in which you all think that social and cultural fabric might have changed and whether that change is going to be temporary or permanent. The immunologist Larry Brilliant says that a pandemic... uh, in history is like a river through geography. It divides the landscape between one side and another. So on that thought, Richard, first of all, do you get the sense by now that, say, a few years down the track, we're going to regard this as a temporary glitch or the beginning of a new way of living? Well, my worry about this is that we take the conditions we're living under right now as the way we have to live in the future permanently. A pandemic itself is a very shifting phenomenon. Once we have a vaccine or we have treatments uh, for the disease, 
we're going to want to live in different ways. There will be lasting effects from this. We know we have to, you know, have a more flexible environment that can adapt to crises like this. But my worry is that we'll build hard structures in cities that normalize the kind of extreme lockdown conditions we have now, by which I mean the following, that will diminish public transport rather than look at ways to figure out how to make public transport healthier, that we might go backwards towards the idea that we have to have suburbanized housing rather than look forward to ways that we can make cities greener, that is more dense, as well as healthier. Power often seizes crises to install new regimes of control. That was true in New York after 9-11, where suddenly you had a slew of regulations to make buildings bombproof in case there was another plane flown into them. And that lasted for a decade. And it paralyzed a lot of construction in New York. And I just worry about this crisis is going to lead to a kind of paralysis of the city in which we're trying to build our way out of what now is an extreme but also a temporary condition. Brandy, before we talk about how this might affect cities on the whole as cities try to figure out how they're going to change, let's bring it back to the personal because you, I'm sure, like everybody else, has faced a certain amount of circumscribing of what they come to regard as their normal life and has done some reflecting on that. What have you personally found yourself not really missing all that much? So personally, I'm an introvert, so... um... Um, Having a lot of social activity doesn't always serve me well. I think I have gotten an opportunity to reflect more. But to answer that question, I think I want to go to, and it really speaks to what Richard just said too, there are ways that there's this hyper-surveillance that's being enacted upon certain people. Uh, And as a result of these regulations around wearing a mask or not standing too close to others or making sure you don't cough or sneeze near someone or else they might be dangerous. What I'm not missing, I think, is this way that we haven't been able to take time to ourselves to be reflective and to also be reflexive. So I do think that there's opportunity for us to kind of stand alone and really kind of be thoughtful in how we do interact with the environment. To see deer, or um, I think I saw there were uh, videos of monkeys in, in Bangkok that are just taking over the streets. And so part of it is giving the environment a break and allowing us to perhaps stay indoors for a moment just so the earth can kind of right itself. To me personally, I I do want us to slow down. Certainly in the academy, being a professor, you know, we, we are tasked with preparing lectures still. We're tasked with doing distance learning and creating. Pedagogically, we're supposed to come up with something that's supposed to translate through this medium, which is really awkward as students are, you know, experiencing their own trauma, whether they have uh, loved ones to take care of, whether they, some of them had to drop out of school because of financial toll. It's a collective sigh and we all kind of have to slow down. So I, I don't miss the rush, right? I don't miss this requirement that we have to constantly be producing. I think there's a moment that we have to kind of draw on what tools we already have and be creative about it. 
Uh, Christoph, that word rush uh, is one which is proverbially associated with cities in particular, most notably, of course, in the context of the rush hour. If we apply that thought not just to individuals but to cities, does it strike you that there are things which cities have had to do without these last few months that cities could probably think about learning to do without permanently? With uh, the kind of stop in, in human activity and travel and and production, we're seeing the resurgence of nature and wildlife in urban environments. But it seems incredibly ephemeral, really precarious. And we see the possibility of how nature could potentially return in our lives and return in our cities, and how we could potentially develop a much healthier relationship with that. But I think a lot of us also are aware that this is fleeting. And once lockdown measures ease and work picks up and travel resumes, all of that is going to be under attack again. So I think a really important question is the relationship between pandemic and the climate crisis and whether we can learn some lessons right now that we can also apply right now in policy and practice as we come out of lockdown. Richard, I just want to go back finally on this thought to a point you made earlier about how long-term changes such as these may affect housing in particular. Does it strike you that there are going to have to be changes to the built environment, whether living spaces will have to become larger to accommodate more people working at home, and perhaps as a consequence, office spaces might become smaller, or will office spaces have to become larger to accommodate more people or the same number of people sitting further away from each other? You know, it's not about residential housing. Christoph could tell you much more about this than I could. But my impression is that we need the kind of housing that is flexible so that, you know, if you've got to isolate from somebody else in the house, you can do it. And when you don't need to isolate, you can get closer to them. I know that in urban terms, The issue is not whether people are dense, but whether they're crowded. And that's a big difference. Uh, You can have a very dense environment in which people are nonetheless naturally social distance, uh, don't practice uh, behaviors that, that might be unhealthy. The Japanese in Tokyo, for instance, which is an incredibly dense city, have uh, habits of being with each other where they naturally space a meter or a meter and a half apart. They bow rather than shake hands. They've had very, very low rate of infection and also, of course, of death because of that. Tokyo is everything that our discussions about, you know, the demon of density is falsified by. And so my worry about this is not how um, there are such good things that happen with density. It brings people who are not the same together. There's wonderful effects economically. It's very green, all of that. The kind of demonization of the big, dense city would throw all of that away. And we only have to look at a place like Tokyo, or for that matter, Berlin, to see that we can manage a crisis like this without really deforming the genius of cities, 
which is that there are lots of people living together. Okay, well, let's move on from that thought and see if there might be some opportunities in this crisis. We do now have some sort of grasp of the divisions that uh, recent social, economic and health crises have exposed. So I guess we should look at whether these gaps can be bridged, whether we now have an open space for perhaps a new social order, both locally, nationally and internationally, or whether it might end up having the opposite effect. Because, Christoph, I'll ask you first. Traditionally, of course, cities are spaces of social mobility and competition, and indeed, that's kind of the best reason for living in a city. Is there a concern that that might change? Might cities become something different to what we've been used to them being? So I think we're seeing how difficult it is to keep cities immobile, right? So the conditions of stasis that lockdown have forced have been very difficult to maintain. So I think the instinct within urban communities is to move about. I think that is a very intrinsic part of urban life. Where the real challenge is, is not just the movement within cities, but the movement between cities. And so much of our contemporary world hinges on the ability of people, and not just people, but also goods and data and ideas to uh, flow between cities around the world. And that's one of the biggest disruptions we've seen, is not just cities themselves grinding to a halt, but the ability to move around the world grinding to a halt. And I think that is a, a major, major issue that's not just economic. Of course, we're seeing the impacts of that on the global economy, but it has really profound implications in other spaces. And so, for example, at universities, where you know, Richard Brandy and I uh, you know, are all very connected to universities, the mobility, the international mobility of students is a huge part of how we create and share knowledge in our world today. And that's something that's really been put under strain in this situation. Richard, as you were saying earlier, you've been studying the evolution of cities for a very long time, especially now that the technology has developed to allow people to work more and more remotely. Does it strike you that perhaps people are attached to cities to a possibly counterproductive degree? Have we now arrived at the point that there's not really anything that you can do in, say, I don't know, New York City or London that you can't do, that's somewhere that's smaller uh, and a lot cheaper. If I may say so, I don't think that's quite quite right, if you don't mind me saying so. You can work for um, Apple uh, or for a big accounting firm from home, but you can't collect garbage from home online. And to me, one of the scary things that we're engaged in is that this is a kind of natural experiment in inequality. How much are people who are poorly paid, how much they are exposed in ways that people who are more privileged don't have to be. And in Britain, we're finding, for instance, you know, we put so much emphasis on working from home as a kind of efficiency mantra, which has meant that it it's created what we all know to be an unequal society, it's created a kind of new logic of inequality. So that's one issue with this. The other thing I'd say about this is there's a huge body of very robust data, which shows that people who work together in groups are much more productive than people who work at home. 
And we all know that from Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) But this is really, you know, this has been 20 or 30 years of work about this ever since it became possible to imagine middle class people working at home. The productivity levels fall, the stimulation you get from water cooler effects, from informal contacts, all diminishes. You're not really visible to other people except people you're doing a task with, so you don't have witnesses, all of that. So it may increase inequality, but I also think it will make cities less productive if we think about sort of detaching, giving people a kind of electronic umbilical cord to work. I, I think it would be, it's not going to be good. Everybody involved in this discussion is joining it from one of those places that people go to to make it, as it were, whether London or California. Um, Brandy, in California, do you detect among your students in particular, especially after the events of recent months, any inklings of rethinking the importance of being in one of those places, whether they were thinking in terms of a San Francisco or a Los Angeles or a New York or a London or Tokyo? Might upcoming generations start thinking, despite all the points that Richard raises there, that I can start my thing somewhere else. I don't have to be in one of those big expensive places. You know, I'm not seeing that. And not so much about the desire to be in a big expensive place, but specifically to be attached to a particular institution. So on the one hand, they are seeing the ways that, you know, top universities around the world are struggling to figure out what to do next and how to put forth a plan that can still maintain the integrity of the information that the faculty, staff, and other administrators are providing students. On the other hand, as I finished up my semester and and reading through evaluations, I was noticing how the students were really disappointed by the time we had to transition to online learning. They preferred being in place. They preferred the classroom environment because there were more interactive activities. And so as much as, you know, I agree with Richard about, you know, that particular data that, that points to ways that people work best in groups. That's the same thing with students. They learn from each other and they learn in these that kind of interactive environment. The other part that I think is really important here, and not just as it relates to the students, is this gender division of labor that becomes so clear when we are stuck at home. And besides the fact that we are starting to see the ways that the most vulnerable literally are vulnerable in terms of their health, but then also ways that they have to travel further to get to work from their homes, etc. You know, for those of us who have children, whose children are at home and we still have to work, we're seeing data that's coming out that, of course, women are taking the bulk of that responsibility in terms of maintaining the household, raising children and working. And so if we kind of create a culture in which we're still here, not only are these college students going to be affected wanting to actually have some kind of connection to these institutions that are providing them with potential solutions to solve these problems, but also the burden ends up falling again on women, on people of color, um, on the poor, rather than those who are in power and making the decisions that that burden isn't necessarily falling at all disproportionately to them. They're taking control again, um, which is what Richard was saying earlier. Christoph, if there is still going to be a value in big cities, as it seems reasonably clear that there is, is it going to become arguable that a city can get 
too big? Have too many cities just reached a point of being unwieldy? I'm not sure what that magic number of population is, but is that something that may change in future? So I I wouldn't want to say there's such a thing as a city that is too big. And I think beyond a certain size, you know, we do live in the age of the megalopolis, you know, the mega city. And in many ways, those really big cities and London could qualify as one of them. Mexico City would be another great example. They're really multiple cities rolled into one. But I think, you know, looking ahead, really face-to-faceness is going to be really, really critical And it's going to be something that people want. And those cities that are able, whether it's through the way they've managed lockdown or through tracking and tracing programs or maybe through treatment and vaccine, but those cities that are able to restore the ability of people to come together in person, I think are going to bounce back much faster and they're going to be very attractive places. So I think that's another big part of the next step here is the experience of the pandemic city has a temporality to it and getting out of that condition and back into some form of sociality that involves uh, human interaction is going to be really, really key to bouncing back. Let's have a bit of a look at what that bouncing back might look like and I guess how we might get around some of the pitfalls that would prevent that bouncing back. And right there, I'm aware that that metaphor holds no water at all because obviously falling into a pit is not going to help with the bouncing. But you see what I'm saying. The pandemic, it has confirmed, among other things, the interconnectedness of our world. COVID-19, of course, travelled as far and as fast as it did because so did the people who were carrying it. But we have seen reactions to it, which have been knee-jerk-ish. We've seen some quite nationalistic rhetoric emerge. Uh, In some countries, we've seen the nativist clamour that was already underway becoming louder, especially when it has come to trade and restarting economies. Richard, again, I guess one of the themes of this discussion has been trying to figure out whether these changes that we're seeing are going to be temporary or permanent. Do you see the experience of the last few months altering relations between nations at any fundamental level? Well, this is a big issue for us in in the UN, just in the way you frame it, that people may think that by shutting their borders, they can protect themselves against the pandemic or future versions of the pandemic. And that's a very concrete issue, even here in Britain, which now, although we have the highest rate of infection and death in Europe, has got a big quarantine operation imposed on any visitor to to Britain, uh, as though these foreigners are bringing disease to us. But what I'm seeing at at work is that that this has become a kind of knee-jerk reaction. It's one of the reasons I really regret that we're leaving the European Union, which is on the whole just because it is a union now of 27 nations, has been a little more balanced about the idea of flow between one country and the next. It's true that even in countries originally hard hit like Italy and Spain, and whose cities were particularly hard hit, that, you know, they've suffered a lot. But this kind of reaction you're talking about, even there, is diminishing. The other thing I'd say to you about this, other than that I think we Brits have the short end of the stick, all of this, is that one 
good thing which might come out of this is that we change a bit our attitudes about tourism. Because in places like London or Paris, tourism, short-term, sort of do all the sites in two days and so on, has really had a terrible effect on the ordinary life of people in cities. Airbnb, all of these have been, on the whole, bad. Mass tourism has been bad for local residents. And one thing I would hope that would come out of this is less tourism, that it, which means that cities will have a more balanced kind of uh, hospitality economy, that it won't be so important that the idea of being of escaping for these crazy, you know, one city, one, one visit, things would diminish. It's a particular hope that people have in Venice. For the first time, Venetians having the feeling that they really live in Venice, that they're not hiding from these massive tour boats of people who descend for the day and then go back to their boats to sleep and move on. So I think that could be a good rebalancing as a result of this, that people, that our habits of tourism uh, change. The 19th century used to make a distinction between travelers and tourists. And traveler was somebody who went someplace else and dwelt there to get to know it. And that's a very different experience than what we've had so far in cities, which are tourists who don't really know the places they visit. That might be a good outcome. Christoph, do you see things changing for longer-term arrivals to big cities, those people who, as we discussed earlier, go somewhere to see if they can make it? Are big cities going to become perhaps less welcoming to immigrants? Uh, That's a a really big and very loaded question. So two things I would say in response. Um, The question of how cities welcome or do not welcome immigrants and migrants There are some disturbing trends around that that have been going on now for quite some time. And I think both in the UK and uh, the US in particular, we're seeing rise in nationalist sentiments and nationalist politics that have the effect of um, uh, creating cultures and, and environments that are maybe not as welcoming to immigrants as in the past. However, looking to the future, People are drawn to cities for millennia because of the way in which they function as sites of opportunity. And I imagine as we deal with the upcoming global recession and the efforts to get through that, that the places of opportunity and the places where capital will continue to kind of congregate will be cities. So I really don't see the importance, the vitality of the city disappearing. And I think we have to look back at the long history of pandemics in cities. This isn't the first major pandemic to hit cities across the world. They've always bounced back in some form. They've always been places of opportunity and hope and ambition. And I think that will absolutely be the case, but it's not going to happen instantly. There's work to be done to create those conditions of opportunity. And what I truly, truly hope that in the process of doing that, we also address the politics that have made migrants and immigrants and refugees and all kinds of vulnerable populations unwelcome. We really need to undo that in the process. 
We are regrettably running out of time. So I'll come back to you, uh, Brandy, for one final thought, which is this. Might we see, and it is an open question as to whether this would be a good thing or not, the big cities we've been talking about perhaps recalibrating their relationship with the rest of the country they are in. I mean, I'm not the first person, I'm sure, to have been struck by the thought that London and New York City often feel like they have more in common with each other than New York City does with the United States or London does with the rest of the United Kingdom. Might cities start to feel more like they belong to the country they're in, do you think? Wow. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's a huge question. And so the, what does that mean, right? So what is the United States, right? What, what is the UK? What's supposed to represent the US? And I think that's something that's constantly shifting. I don't think it's new that New York is very different in terms of experience, let's say, than Mississippi or what's happening in Ohio or California. I'm from California, so I've always felt as though uh, we were our own territory um, that was very distinct from the rest of the country. So I think some of the points that Christoph brought up about welcoming others, specifically states and cities, but not just the welcoming part, but recognizing the ways that we will welcome someone's labor, but not necessarily invite them to stay, live and thrive in a particular location. And that might be the case, too, with us understanding how as a country or these individual countries, how to come up with ways that we allow people to actually have good lives. Right. I, I don't think we focus on people thriving in the ways that we really mean it. There's a focus, for example, in the United States on the middle class, that whatever that means now. And so the assumption is that the middle class is supposed to live a particular way in the city. But we're seeing what the pandemic has done is for, and you bring up New York, for example, the wealthy folks in New York are trotting out to rural areas where they own other property and they're endangering the lives of the folks who live um, outside of the city. And so there's this idea of escaping the city, or at least the ability to escape the city when others are trying to gain access. So I think we need to really kind of look at ourselves in the face and understand how we are producing ideas of who we are, especially in the United States, uh, rallying around a certain identity of what it means to be American. Clearly that has been blown up. And so I think we need to work towards dismantling and then kind of building back up the fact that it's not cohesive, that it's variegated, and that it's really the differences that do allow us to shift with these different crises especially as we imagine going back to California, we are still going to experience the huge earthquake. And so we're having to deal with this, you know, pandemic, a, a public health crisis. And it's taking us away from thinking about how we need to prepare ourselves from these environmental potential catastrophes that are coming our way. So we have to do so much at the same time. And we can't necessarily focus on nationalistic rhetoric around who we need to be in this moment. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much to our guests, Brandy Thompson-Summers, Christoph Lindner and Richard Sennett. There's much more to come on the Monocle Weekly Thinkers series. Over the next few weeks, we'll be taking a closer look at everything from good citizenship and how we live with each other to political risk and the challenges facing democracy. Thanks to our producers, Augustin Machalari, Charlie Filmacourt and Louis Harnett O'Mara and our studio manager, Louis Allen. From me, Andrew Miller, thanks very much for listening. Listening. 